0: Hello, welcome back everyone. Crazy to say this, but this is the start of season number two. I started the Training Edge podcast six months ago, and we have published 17 episodes with amazing guests. If you're new here, go ahead, look back through season one and give it, you know, give a few a listen. For season one, I focused on chatting with athletes from all backgrounds. We chatted about, you know, a variety of topics learning how they have taken on different challenges and then how we can apply that to our own challenges in life and in sport. Now for season number two, I'm changing things up just a tad. For this season, I'm focusing instead on coaches. Through these conversations, I'm hoping to uncover what secrets they have, the challenges they have faced and what they have learned from working with a variety of athletes. I'll mix up the format a little bit alternating between standard style interviews but for my first guest i'm trying what i call a round table where two coaches are able to just chat about different topics Um, i've just found this style of conversation to be a huge tool as a coach because it allows for some pretty cool discussions to be had and just general general creativity to flow all right on to the show and thanks again for joining and welcome to season two (music)
1: just right up chautauqua okay like whatever that loop like the blue
0: on the mesa like on the mesa loop yeah okay i
1: had to walk home because i thought i just sprained it which probably was not smart but...
0: <laughs> and you broke your leg where where was the break again because uh, you were both, in a boot right it
1: was, it was both of them so it was lateral and medial malleolus Wow. the lateral one was a avulsion tear so the ligament like pulled a piece of the bone off, and then um, the medial one was just like a crack through. They're really fine, so they didn't show up on the first x-ray, so they put me in a walking boot at first. And then like three days later I was like, it still really hurts to walk. And so then I went in and like she was pushing around and then she like pushed on my ankle bone and I just blacked out. (laughs) Oh. And that's when they're like, yeah, I'll probably get an MRI. And then the thing was broken. And then I strapped a cleat to my fucking cast and Really? would ride the trainer.
0: Uh, the yeah. things that you would do. So you would obviously, you know, tell athletes to do that now, right? Of, like, course, of course. Of course. All right. Yeah. Great. That's what I thought. Um, yeah, me too. Definitely.
1: Just like all like the max one minute efforts I did like the first day I got back being allowed to ride with my broken collarbone. I was like, "It's fine. I'll just have one hand on him, yeah, <laughs> and just go as hard as I can like, hey, for one minute."
0: <laughs> oh God! I yeah. Every athlete ever, at some point or another, like just ignores any reason or oh, yeah. rationality and just pushes through things. I think like I had my worst crash ever, and then got home from the hospital and was like still missing all of my teeth and had a really gnarly concussion, and then immediately got on the trainer and like started doing <laughs> TT efforts because I was worried about the race that weekend. <laughs> Ugh, stupid athletes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Anyways, all right, let's do it. Okay. <clears throat> so we don't just sit here <laughs> telling <laughs> horror stories this whole time. All right. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on the Training Edge podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Newkirk. Today, we're doing something a little different um, this is the first of our coaching roundtable episodes that I'm giving a try um, where I basically ask a coach to join me um, to discuss different topics within sport um, training and coaching in general. Um, today's guest is a good friend of mine, former teammate Matt Casson. Matt is the head physiologist at Wahoo Fitness and lives here in Boulder. Um, Matt is actually also a multi-time national champ. Um, as an athlete, so there's that as well. Um, Mac, thanks for joining me, and how are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's warm, but it's going to rain soon, so it's a bit questionable how I'll get home on my bike. But we'll, we'll circle back to that later. Yeah. Okay. Great.
0: Mac rode here, um, so yeah, he might be stranded for a bit, but that's okay. We're having we're having a nice beer, so we'll just weather the storm. Um, all right. So the goal of these roundtables. Uh, is just to spur conversation as coaches. Uh, I think coaches in general don't have a lot of resources just to have conversations like this. So I'm personally very excited, um, learn from each other, and you know, hopefully give the listeners something to apply to themselves and their own training. Um, so we, I asked Mac to come with uh, five questions, and I have five questions of my own, and we're just going to, Throw them at each other, and it's basically just to spur a conversation. Um, there's no right or wrong answer, um, unless Mac just flat out tells me I'm wrong, <laughs> um, which he's done in the past, which is fine. Um,
1: so, Mac, do you want to go first? Throughout the first question. Throughout the first question. Sure. So, um, the first question is one that uh, comes to, to us quite a bit, um, and it, it essentially revolves around uh, cadence. Like, what is my optimal like what should i be pedaling at because for a lot of workouts that you know i recommend i give fairly specific cadence targets and ranges Hmm. um and so the question comes back often of of why is that why am i doing these efforts at this cadence for this duration that sort of thing um so what is the question i guess the question is the question is like why does why does Cadence matters, shouldn't I? If, I've, if I'm going out, like a watt is a watt, right. so if I'm producing that watt at 60 RPM or 100 RPM, I'm still producing the, power. the target power, Yep. so why does it matter okay. what the cadence is? Um,
0: I, That's interesting, because I think actually cadence is where I tend to get the most geekiest, I think, within, I'm, within reviewing files for athletes. Um, so when I start with an athlete, I pretty much always test them um, in regards to cadences. And I don't really tell them this. I, um, give them different workouts that has pretty extreme cadence, uh, regulations. So, you know, the classic over gear. So doing a workout with 60 RPMs or doing under gears where you're doing a workout
1: at 105 or a hundred RPM. Um, as a track cyclist to say that 105 is over. I know <laughs> but roadies, things. but you roadies,
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. Um, but basically what I do then is I watch responses. So watch, um, heart rate, see what the body does get feedback on sensations, what they were doing. Um, you know, you can go into watching percentages within left and right balance. You can watch, um, just in general, how that tends to skew. Um, the interesting thing is when you start, I think is when you, okay, it's one thing to have an athlete do endurance or even maybe like a, uh, just an aerobic effort at, a certain cadence it's one thing to have them do that it's another thing to have them do a higher intensity or you know even a, th- a like you know threshold style workout um at that cadence levels because it can totally change sensations it can change um just how difficult the effort is or not um and my like general purpose within testing athletes on either end of those range is Um, primarily targeted at racers and environment so the ability to have an athlete withstand a magnitude of environments and a widespread of range so that they have uh, become more versatile and they're able to handle different demands that's the biggest thing Um, and the primary reason I do it um, a lot of it is like all right you need to be able to finish the stage when the climb is an average of 10% grade. Like, I don't care what gear you throw on, like, you're going to be running a, a pretty high torque rate. So then also you need to be able to jump on a downhill sprint and be able to do, you know, 130, 140 RPM and be able to put out a substantial amount of power. So it's all those different things. And then it's also, you know, what if you're in a race environment where maybe you're averaging 110 RPM and, Um, you haven't done that in any of your rides before. So, wow, what happens? Maybe you cramp or something like that. Um, all right, let's figure out how to get you used to those demands. And then from there you can kind of, you know, benefit the athlete in its best way. Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily define cadences on a regular though, on a standard workout. Um, so I wouldn't say like I go out, um, and if I have an endurance ride for, I'm just spitballing, but if I have endurance ride for an athlete, if I have them do, you know, I don't necessarily tell them to do hundred RPMs for the entire ride or something like that, or stick within a very narrow range. Um, I'm curious why,
1: or if you do. Well, as a, as a question to you first, um, so you, you say, if you're not specifying a specific cadence range, do you, if you see that that rider averaged 55 RPM on an endurance ride, do you make a yes comment about that and tell them yes. that they should not be maybe doing don't that. do that yeah yeah okay so there's still so in your mind there's still a, an acceptable range that you'd like them to be for efforts you just don't necessarily mandate them to the same way you would a power range
0: i do like to see where they land yeah for sure um, and then if they land in an area that i think is not necessarily benefiting them or maybe is causing them different sensations than the one i'm looking for them or adaptations um, then I'll yeah regulate a little bit more. So but I guess it's more like after the fact of seeing uh the athlete do something rather than
1: beforehand telling them to do
0: something. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I mean for for me the the cadence component is I think it's again, it's something I I geek out over yeah. a lot. Yeah. And obviously coming from the track, like you, you have one gear and you have speeds you want to go, so you get very in tune with if I'm going this fast on this gear, this is how fast I'll be pedaling. Um, but, you know, beyond that, the the cadence component is so significant because it really does make this statement, a watt is a watt, just not true. Because you can be riding at, you know, 80% of threshold. If you're riding at 120 RPM, okay. there is a considerable yes. aerobic demand from that yep. because the, Um, you know, the muscle contraction is so fast. You, even though it's a lower intensity, you are recruiting the type two glycolytic fibers. So those things are, you know, the ones that are, that you normally activate doing VO two type efforts. So you're, you're activating that musculature. So you're having this lower intensity, this lower muscular strain compared to a VO two effort, but you're getting that cardiovascular response because those muscles are still having to you know, contribute significantly. So in that you can get with less strain overall in the body, you can get a, you know, sort of a VO2 type training stimulus. Um, At the same time, you can, you, you go the opposite way and and get a similar shift in that you can be riding at 80 percent of your threshold down at 50 RPM. And now there's minimal aerobic demand. There's again, because now, With high cadence, the force or the rate of contraction is higher, so the fast-twitch muscle fibers have to be recruited. When it's much lower cadence but really high torque, high force, that also is going to recruit those type Mm 2. So, again, you're getting an instance where with relative low strain because it's 80% of threshold, doing it at such a low torque, you know, your body handles it differently it recruits different muscles and so the training stimulus becomes you know more beneficial towards that you know some people call it muscular endurance like muscular fatigue whatever you want to call it 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 changes you know the yeah it changes what you can get out of a eighty yeah. percent of ftp yeah. interval it changes the demands entirely exactly yeah. and and what's critical to that is Um, and there's some, some good papers that have come out that could, that have fairly well concluded this, but it's, it's basically, if you can determine an optimal cadence, there are a few papers that have come out about that, but none of them have been (laughs) super bulletproof. But (laughs) (laughs) when you talk about, um, someone's optimal cadence, like physiologically, what's the most efficient pedaling speed for that person? Um, you, you end up with a range that's essentially 15% above or below the the physiology of whatever power output you're doing, doesn't really change. As soon as you cross that 15% threshold, the physiological response becomes statistically different. Mm. So obviously there's the range, like as you start to drop, you start to shift the physiology, but it's once you hit that 15% difference from your optimal, that's when we can statistically say, this is a different, demand yeah. you're placing on your body and so you know that allows you to train a lot of the systems that normally you know you need really high intensity efforts to train so you can more f- like so in an, in an average week it looked like there'll be at least three sessions where cadence zones are specifically stated for mm-hmm. for athletes i work with and, and sometimes it's short you know Two-minute stuff. Sometimes it's 20-minute long efforts. Um, the other real component to that is, you know, finding out what that optimal cadence is. Yeah, that's been something that, um, again, there's a a good paper that has a really nice formula that we we ran a bunch of people through. Um, it worked for about half of them. Worked really well for me, which is why I was super excited <laughs> at first because I was like this. Has Sick. nailed, yeah. <laughs> nailed me. It's like it knows who I am. Um, but being able to to figure that out is kind of the f- the first thing you need to do before you can really start messing around with those cadences, yeah, appropriately, yeah.
0: Um, so I have like my own fairly rough ways of figuring that out. Um, and I guess first, it's interesting that the fifteen percent is kind of where they landed. It seems wide to me like looking thinking about it um but
1: well i mean if you figure if it's if it's 90 rpm right is your optimal right 15 percent of that's not even 15 rpm so you're talking about going from 90 to 76 hmm. so it's 76 rpm at 200 watts you could say is statistically different in physiological response to 90 rpm at 200 watts
0: just statistically yeah so like something that's shown right um because yeah i mean like as a rider thinking about the difference between doing 90 rpms and like mid 70s or even high 70s is like pretty drastic um so that's just interesting but anyways um so i guess figuring out optimal range then what would you
1: uh yeah well, what have you found is the easiest way to or best way of doing that Let's yeah go so best. that's some of that comes down to um the the testing that we like to have people do and like our testing protocol involves you know So max sprints and then a max five minute effort, six minutes recovery and a max 20 minute effort. Um, you know, that people tend to gravitate towards a higher cadence for the five minute effort because you know, the overall power output demands are higher. Yeah. So you, most people tend to gravitate towards that. There's a lot of people I've seen who do the opposite, which I find odd. It doesn't work for me anytime I've done that test and, done it on a climb where I'm like limited to like 80 RPM, my my 20 minute effort is awful yeah. because my legs are just destroyed. And so, you know, there's there's looking at how they perform for that. And then it's a lot of just longitudinal, like you were saying, looking at different these different sessions I give them and looking at their cadence relative to their power, relative to their heart rate, mm-hmm. kind of trying to triangulate those things. And what you can start to see is as people get, comfortable at higher cadences you can do um, you know short minute long high cadence blocks and you can give them the exact same set over time and what you'll see is as they become more efficient at higher cadences um, their heart rate increase at the end of that interval is going to go down slightly as the year progresses yeah um, and it's funny that you mentioned the you know if you get stuck in a race where you have to pedal at 110 rpm because I, I had a client who always likes to pedal fast but he was he's his best power is always 80 so when we had it so <laughs> the year this happened like he'd started doing all his TTs at 80 and his power was significantly yeah. higher yeah. he was doing a team time trial and his di2 battery died so he was stuck in the little ring on the way back oh so because he'd had the training to pedal at higher rpm he averaged 117 rpm for the uh 22 minute return so he was still taking pulls. He was still there, but at a cadence that was not at all optimal for him. But he had enough time riding at that high cadence that yeah, he was able to
0: do it. He was able to do it. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one to train too because it, it usually is. Um, like it's one thing to tell an, an athlete to do a particular output. It's another thing f- to put them in an uncomfortable scenario while they're doing that particular output. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've had, I have a lot of, yeah, you get a lot of disgruntled <laughs> feedback sometimes, but there,
1: yeah, there is some good um, adaptation there for sure. Um, yeah. The one, the one last thing I, I I say to, to cadence and it's one thing where like, you know, one of the a session that I'll give everyone at least two times a month is, is cadence builds. So thirty second cadence builds the the goal being just max maximum RPM. So ideally you're doing this on a slight downhill. Yeah. You end up bouncing a good bit. Your chain will kind of slap. Yeah. Slap the top tube a bit. Uh, or I guess the, the seats, the <laughs> <safe laughs> seat slapping the top, in top, and top and tube. some other stuff has <laughs> happened. Um, and that's really to get the neuromuscular coordination going. Yeah. So definitely. like I've, when, we've, when we get, when I start with some triathletes, I have them do it and they max out at 120 RPM. Yeah. That's the fastest they can pedal. Jeez. The problem is is that, you know, neuromuscular coordination, like fine motor control is something that is so blatantly apparent in almost every other aspect of life, but not on a bike because you're connected to a crank that no matter what is going in a perfect circle. Yeah. If you're trying to play the piano, your muscular coordination becomes very apparent with if you can hit the right keys, all that stuff. And so people just tend to ignore that you need to have good neuromuscular coordination when riding. The worst thing you can be doing is as you're pushing down on the pedal and your quads and your glutes are engaging, the last thing you want is when that pedal's coming up is for your quads and your glutes to still be engaged. Because then your other leg, some of the force it's putting into the pedals, is just to get yeah, your other leg out leg. of the way. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Fighting so itself. even if, right, in, in no race except for a BMX race or a track race is anyone going to be above 130 RPM for any amount of time. But the training benefit from doing efforts above 130 RPM, like filter down to all other intensities. And so that's, again, why, like, Saying like a watt is just a watt or like, you know, cadence, like I don't need to sprint or do cadence work because I'm never going to do that in my race is just a really bad way to look at it because the training that you do should be specific to your event, but the training you should do should also be, you know, getting you as efficient as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised at what things can be applicable to your event it isn't necessarily always like, okay, your event is a hundred miles. Um, you just need to keep doing a hundred mile rides. It doesn't necessarily work that way Mm -hmm. and you can find really good adaptations within really adverse stuff that you wouldn't have thought of or, you know, maybe took trying something new to seek or find. So, um, and I think cadence is one of those examples. Um, efficiency though. Like if, I mean, there's all sorts of tools to measure efficiency, but, um, it's still a darn difficult one to, yeah.
1: to measure. We actually, um, since we have, we've got a metabolic cart in our lab, um, we were doing some work with stages and this was obviously a, just a wrap study from a while ago. Um, but basically we were looking at different cadences and efficiency and we didn't publish any papers, but as far as I'm aware, we have the, we have documented the worst efficiency ever recorded by a human being on a bicycle. All right. What in, a title. And in, in, in three minutes at 110 RPM out of the saddle at 50 watts, their <laughs> metabolic cost. Normally, like, you know, basically all the other tests we did from low to high, you're looking at like something around 80 watts per liter of oxygen. Yeah. At 110 RPM at 50 watts out of the saddle, we were looking about twenty watts per liter. Wow. Which That's crazy. Which is <laughs> yeah. That was one of the ones where it was became really eye opening that yeah, this this thing, obviously 110 RPM out of the saddle at so low yeah, power is right. like yeah. you can't do that other than on a stationary bike. Right, right. But it clearly indicates that there's a there's a range here. Right. And you need to understand that,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a scenario where it is awkward. And, like, any normal person or rider in general, you stick in that environment. They're going to feel really weird. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's extreme, but still, that's pretty crazy. Dang. All right. Um, All right, you good on that question? Sweet.
1: Yeah. Okay. There's one. You can edit this out. But I would like to address. There was a study that came out about a year, or two years ago at this point, because COVID has made time irrelevant. Yeah. Um, that looked at. It basically said, oh, all the all the news media, like Vela News, you know, Cycling Weekly, all said, oh, you shouldn't pedal like Chris Froome at 100 RPM, and they cited this study that had been done. Uh, I want to say Kent University, but I can't be sure. Um, and it was looking at average people. And they had them at a variety of cadences and they had them at power roughly equivalent to their threshold power. And yes, they found that at 100 RPM, those people were drastically less efficient. So they were you know, looking at, I don't remember the numbers at all, but it's something like 20% less efficient than when they were at 60 RPM. Wow. The issue there was that the people they were testing, their threshold power was about 100 watts. So when you talk about the force required to generate a hundred watts right. versus the force required to move your own legs, 100 RPM. You're getting into a point where the energy demand of moving your legs. is yeah, It's probably is so far. It's so much higher yeah, than the power, than the power output. output. Yeah. So really all that study says is that if you're, you know, if your threshold's lower, theoretically your ideal cadence is going to be lower. Yeah. The fitter you get, you know, if you're talking about Rohan Dennis doing, you know, a TT at 440 watts right at 100 RPM, if you talk about the energy cost, the oxygen cost for him to move his legs at 100 RPM compared to the energy cost for 440 watts, that energy cost of moving his legs is not very minimal, It's yeah. very minimal or a percentage purport, Yeah. Right, as a right, percentage, percentage. Yeah. Yeah. of. What that 440 watts is, yeah. and so the cadence. So all those times these articles come out and talk about, oh no, these pros are doing it all wrong, or you shouldn't try to emulate the pros. It's it's this horrible black and white of like, oh look, this study says that 100 RPM is bad, yeah. When it's really like, if you look at the factors going down to it, the lower your threshold or the larger the mass of your legs are, true, in both, yeah. The lower your optimal RPM likely will be, likely will yeah. be, yeah. yeah.
0: Makes sense. That's really interesting. I mean, it's definitely not something I think the masses think about as far as just like the cost of movement within just in general. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess if you relate it to, you know, if you're going for a hike or if you're going for a run or of something of similar nature, the ability to move mass is, yeah, that's going to be more apparent or it's going to be more talked about or thought of. Um, it's just, I'm probably taken away because you are on this like machine and again you're, you're making perfect service right, no it's what. always perfect yeah. so yeah <laughs> that's a that's an interesting study i hadn't heard of that one that, that one's kind of i only heard about it because it
1: came up in like six different uh, cycling all the things different things, channels okay and it yeah bothered me
0: it's it's interesting <laughs> i mean like the sports i'm interested to hear what you think of this but the sport, we're never gonna get to the second question uh, um so anyways the i'm you know, on the sports science side, and I guess like within a lot of studies, um, but especially within sports science, a lot of the stuff that's targeted is targeted at the elite level. So if they're trying something new, it is at the professional level, it is at the world class realm. And then, you know, it's the new gimmick, it's the new thing, it's what, you know, Sky is doing or any else or whatever. And then um, it is basically published to the media, kind of like what you just said, and then um, it trickles down. But the application isn't always there, and it does drive me nuts when people report as if the application is immediately um, there and going to be applying to the masses. And yeah,
1: it's like yeah, it's. I mean, you look at like everyone's told, oh, you should ride at 90 RPM. Yeah, and that's widely viewed as like, yeah, everyone should you should try to get to 90 RPM. There's people who will never be efficient at 90 RPM. There, there are people who 90 RPM is on the low side of efficiency for them. Like it's just again you, you you can get these nice little simplified recommendations yeah and people like i mean people like things to be simple they just like yeah, definitely. to be told one thing and then that's yeah. the way it is the golden and, ticket yeah yeah and yeah. and you go with that but it's yeah it's it's really not that straightforward i mean i think another good example of looking at like when you're looking at an elite population versus an average population um is a lot of the the initial work on doc, done by Dr. Seller on polarized training, yeah, right? definitely. looking yeah, at 100%. Nordic skiers, right? He's saying, oh, that 20% of their time is spent at high intensity, the rest is low intensity. they are averaging 25 hour weeks. That's, you know, five hours of high intensity training. That's something that as a normal person, just doing that five hours of high intensity training would probably break you. Yeah, cripple you. It yeah. doesn't mean that if you have five hours to train, you should do one hour <laughs> of intensity. And four hours easy. Yeah. It probably means you should do three hours of intensity and then maybe some active recovery. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's taking these. And I mean, that's the nature of science, right? You look at groups, you analyze the data and you make conclusions off of that. Based off that. Yeah. And that's, and that's how science works. That's how science should work. The, the missing step is once you get to the application side of things. Right. And, and not looking past, like just reading the conclusion of a paper or just the abstract of a paper, like the last sentence in the abstract. That's the conclusion. If you just read that part and then run with it, like that's not, you know, that's not what that paper was intended to. Yeah, and it's not up to this, like the
0: whoever is performing the study to fill in the blank or like add in the caveat or whatever it might be. of saying right. like, well, this probably wouldn't apply. To this. Like, that's not their job. That's not what they're seeking to do.
1: Well, but they do that in their discussion. That's, like, the point of the discussion. Which is why I'm saying, like, don't just read the conclusion. Read the discussion. At least read that. They'll, If it's a good paper, they'll outline, like, this was bad, and this was bad, and this was bad. And And that's, like, one of the funny things about, like, well-done papers is that they just, like, rip themselves a new one. Because (laughs) (laughs) they acknowledge all of the limitations that they had. Because, again, there's no... There's no perfect study. No, out there. never.
0: Yeah. Ah, science. Okay. Uh, <laughs> question number two. Man, that was good. Um, all right. My so my first question, um, and this has been interesting because it just applies to the time, and I, I messaged you earlier about this. So I guess I give you a heads up. But um, the essentially just heat and how the uh, al- how athletes respond to heat um, and uh, heat acclimatization and what can be done about it, and, uh, yeah, just in general, like, what what would you do?
1: I know that I respond very poorly to heat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as an aside, yeah, the the heat training, like sauna sessions training in a sauna, you know, training with a raincoat out when it's 90 degrees, like, there's a lot of... Um, yeah, that that has been a big thing. There's some conflicting evidence... You know, coming out recently in regards to does doing heat training give you performance benefits in regular temperatures? That's right. where the jury's right now being like, ah, it doesn't necessarily seem so. Yeah. Um, my thinking for it has always kind of been that, um, you know, and there's a paper that came out really recently that like was saying the similar thing, but right, heat training, what it does is, is, it forces your body to store more liquid in the form of blood plasma. So you create more blood plasma and hematocrit, as we all know from the good old Lance Armstrong (laughs) doping days, as long as it was below 50, you weren't doping, which completely not true. (laughs) But the point is that is just a ratio of the hemoglobin, the red blood cells to the total volume of blood plasma you have. Now what happens, your body produces EPO, which they took, You know artificially your body produces it on its own if you go up to altitude if you sleep in an altitude tent which is why it like altitude can relate to um heat training as well yes and so um essentially your body has a bunch of different sensors to sense what's going on like for altitude it's it's sensing that you have low blood oxygen saturation and so it's responding to that um it's you know it's been theorized that there are other Sensors that are looking at, okay, what's your actual hematocrit? What is the percentage of plasma to um, red blood cells? And so when you do heat training, your hematocrit will drop. You still have the same mass of hemoglobin, but because you have more blood plasma, since hematocrit is just a percentage of plasma to red blood cells, all of a sudden that drops. Now, there have been some findings that that drop can be a stimulus for new red blood cell creation. So essentially what's happening is you're tricking your body into thinking you're low on hematocrit so that it produces more red blood cells, which is why it's been like it was and has been recommended for adjusting to altitude if you can't get to altitude. This specific mechanism had never really been nailed down. It seems they're a lot closer to that now. Um, And then when you just talk about okay, it only benefits you in hot climates, it's, well, you have a given sweat rate, you know, you have sweat in the form of plasma and the water that's stored with the glycogen in your muscles. So, right, like every gram of glycogen is going to have three grams of water with it. So if you burn through all 500 grams of glycogen in your muscles, you've got an extra kilo and a half of water that you can sweat out before you get dehydrated. Same thing with increased plasma volume, is you have a bit more of a buffer before your blood plasma volume really starts to significantly drop. And that's when you see cardiac drift, right? Your blood volume drops because the plasma volume drops, and so your heart rate has to work harder. Um, That's sort of where, okay, in heat training, having that extra reserve of plasma in your blood can be beneficial in regular environments that component of it doesn't necessarily come into play well it doesn't seem like it'd be activated at all right so yeah like exactly it would just be it would you'd still lose some plasma but you still right. have all those reserves from the glycogen and, and right. unless you're doing an ultra ultra yeah. like even if like in like 60 degree weather and you're not hydrating then yeah that becomes yeah a problem. maybe yeah
0: yeah i could see that being yeah if you're <sighs> yeah and then you're putting you're kind of just (laughs) it just allows you to make mistakes i guess that would be the only benefit there (laughs) um huh all right yeah that that all fits i mean it's been well okay well how about like on the so now we've discussed the the, what it does so what um how about i mean i know there's different protocols and that people have used and um within studies and within athletes but what would you what have you tried what have you used what have you had athletes use what have, mm-hmm. yeah so on
1: yeah so um i've of this stuff i sort of listed at the start like sauna's after workouts mm-hmm. i've used that i've used that one more than any other just for generally convenience yeah same um i've had a combination of sauna and like essentially gym work in terms of doing step ups in the sauna, which mm-hmm. is great if you're by yourself, but if there's lots of people that can get <laughs> very awkward, just <laughs> just very cranking quickly. out some push-ups or something. <laughs> um, and then even like riding the rollers in a sauna, yep. um, that can get slippery. So be careful with that one. Um, and then even, um, a more simple one is just putting on, it's sort of like what, um, you know, f- Boxers will do if they're trying to make weight, like put on a bunch of sweatpants and like a rain jacket and go hit the treadmill. But I'll like so tell people to go right outside, go do your workout, but have your leg warmers on, have your jacket on, have a raincoat on, have gloves on. Like basically, you're trying to make your internal temperature go up significantly yeah. higher than it would be otherwise. Obviously, if it's already like 95 degrees outside. Yeah. Be careful. Don't, don't yeah. do that. Please be careful. That's, that's if it's like, if it's 75 out and you know that in two weeks time, you're traveling to California where it's, or Arizona where it's already 90 degrees. Right. Right. That's the, that's where that application comes in. The, the advantage of the sauna is that it really, well, any of these protocols you do is going to be more stressful on your body. Right. Yep. That's why it's adapting because you've put it under more stress. And so you really need to take that into consideration if you're trying to add this into training. Something, yeah. And so generally, yeah. if there's sauna sessions that I give athletes, it would be, you know, towards, it'd be essentially at the end of smaller blocks where it's like if it's a hard day, hard day, after the second hard day, sauna, and then the next day's easy so they can recover. Yeah. And I prefer the sauna because I also tell them like go to the sauna with a full water bottle. Yeah, it's a controlled environment. Drink yep. that full water bottle. Yeah. Definitely. What's what's what protocols have you found? I mean,
0: I, I've found the similar similar things. Um, yeah, I mean, like the sauna protocol, um, th- like doing it, uh, yeah, two three times a week on kind of like the earlier phases of training. So that's the other thing is if, I mean, you already touched on it, but I think where people find themselves in a bind is when they try and add in. I mean, it's the same thing with trying to do altitude training. Um, when they're throwing in a really intense block, it just doesn't work. You just, you're throwing in another variable. That's just going to break you down further. So, um, just be aware of that. Um, so it does need to be in line with like an easier day. So if you are doing the protocol of going out and riding with a raincoat on in 90 degree weather, uh, don't go do VO two max efforts. Like that's not, um, going to benefit you on either end. So that's, yeah, don't do that. Um, I think the interesting one is when you have an athlete that lives in a hot climate, so they're already there. Um, so their heat training is already, um, maybe necessarily like occurring. They're just trying to boost it just a tad bit more. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Essentially what I've had them in those scenarios do is have specific days that they're more on like the right time within the build or the block. And, um, it's a little bit more low key and then having them on purpose ride within safety measures ride at the hottest time of the day. Um, and that is when that adaptation is taking place. Um, but yeah, have you had that?
1: I, I have not directly worked with anyone in Arizona, which is I think the main place where that would yep, <laughs> yeah. uh, occur. But no, I, th- I think that, I think that makes perfect sense when you, when you just think about, again, anytime you're talking about training, you're talking about adaptation and you're talking about adaptation because you've put someone's body under a new novel stress. And so if someone's been living in Arizona and riding, you know, maybe not. um, I know a lot of people live in Arizona, like ride like 4 a.m. in the summer. Yep. Because they can't do it. But if you've got someone who like has to ride at 7 a.m. And so they've been doing like years of riding where it's already mid 90s, low 100s. If they want to try and get an additional boost from the heat training. You need to make them ride at hotter times of day. You need to increase proportional to what they've been doing. I think it's really important with that though, to, you know, look at it and acknowledge, okay, how long have they been there and how long have they been doing their current habits of like, oh, I can only ride at seven. So I'm in the days where it's like 95. It's like, if you've been doing that for three years and found a, you know, steady training progression over the years. That's one thing. If you've only been doing it for the last three months because of life changes, right. that's not the time to say, okay, let's crank this up a notch. Yep. Like, it really needs to be, you need to have a really like set baseline essentially of what heat acclimation your body is used to, and then expand off that if you want to improve it. But if you're still, if you're still getting used to your new current, if you moved to Arizona, you shouldn't be contemplating saunas. And
0: <laughs> yeah, like if you're getting used to 80 degrees, then you probably shouldn't be like looking to um, add to that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Bit by bit. That's interesting that you um, say about like the, um, I guess, when you have somebody riding at a moderate temperature and then they're adapted to a higher temperature. Um, they're not really activating that. That's interesting because I, when I lived and raced in the south, you would see like all the like hard men, old guys that would race that would like ride four hour ride with one bottle. Um, and they're probably fairly adapted to that heat, but they're probably making, I guess the mistake that I was mentioning earlier where they're just like still just pushing their body to. Uh, a state of depletion. It just might just take longer than other people.
1: Yeah. We def- yeah. For those guys, if they've been there long enough, it'll definitely take longer. And then you also get into like the, oh, I forget whatever bias term it is for that. But like, if you've been doing something wrong for 20 years, oh yeah, then you're not going to notice that you're still doing it wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, definitely. It's like, Oh, this feels the same. That's great. Um, what about, uh, you know, like let's say for example, um, you know, uh, yeah, you get an athlete acclimatized to pretty extreme heat. Summer takes place. Summer goes away. And then uh, we'll say it's uh, somebody lives in the mountains. So the, you know, fall hits and the temperatures drop significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly, I don't know if you know, but you any guess on like how quickly that adaptation would disappear?
1: Um that's, you know, I, I'm not hundred percent sure. I know that just, just general endurance training, regardless of environmental heat. One of the first adaptations you make is an increase in blood plasma. Hmm. It's also the first adaptation that you lose. So if you're, if you, anyone has taken a week off of doing any sort of training and you come back and your heart rate's really high, it's not because you've lost fitness. It's because you've lost plasma volume. Um, and that's why it can bounce back really quickly after like three, four days of training after a short time period off, you'll be right back to where you were, right? I would imagine that for heat acclimation, it, it, it would make sense that it operates in the same sort of window of if you, once you stop that sort of, once you stop the strain that is causing your body to have more plasma volume, then you're looking at like a week. Cause again, if endurance training itself is a stressor that causes plasma volume to increase, and if a week of no training right, it's has cold. plasma volume go away, then, yeah. yeah, it probably is the same thing. I think one thing there, though, is that, you know, just riding, that could probably be mitigated fairly easily, especially if someone's, you know, it's the winter and they're inside, of doing some trainer sessions without a fan on. That's essentially going to be, for their relative state at that point, that's going to be heat training to them. Because, again, it's more... Than Each what they yeah, what, what they're used to what they're used to yeah
0: yeah, huh. fair enough. All right,
1: uh, next question. Oh so, yeah, Man, cranking through them now. <laughs> <laughs> so on the topic of, you know, this one isn't really vogue or new, but it is. It does have some very strong opinions. Fasted riding, training in the morning, without. Brecky, as Joss would say. Jeez. Oh, we had a
0: yeah. We had a teammate a while back that yeah was. I think we were all into this into fasted riding back in were the day. You,
1: I was into recovery spin fasted riding. <laughs> yes, correct. You dropped me every time. I did. He'd be like, "Oh, I'll go with you," and then I'm like, "I'm riding a hundred watts, Isaiah."
0: And he would just ride away. We we all make mistakes when we were young, and I <laughs> was definitely young. I think back actually truly taught me the meaning of a recovery ride.
1: Um, yeah, I'll give you credit for that. For those who don't know, you should be embarrassed to be seen on a recovery ride. Yeah. If you're full fully kitted out, the only proper recovery ride is one that you're embarrassed when some commuter on like a townie. Yeah, when the beach cruiser passes you, you're doing it right. Yep, 100%.
0: Um, all right. Fasted riding. Ooh. Um, I, I think much within it's, it's also just what you, what are you trying to get out of it? What is the purpose of it? Where is it? Um, and I think those are important questions to ask that don't often get asked. Um, you know, for, for one, we should mention that like It doesn't work for everyone and you need to know that um and you know for example um females versus male um the you know like the adaptation there is very very different Mm -hmm. um and you know generally uh facet riding on the female side is is you know no go um and for on the male side um i think that If you are trying to achieve a, you know, like a ramp in, um, (laughs) sorry, this is like a, it can be a touchy subject within certain athletes and even some that I have right now, but basically it's, if you are looking for, um, let's say you want to have a change in body weight, you're trying to have a change in. Um, body mass or you're trying to ramp your system in some way or another um, it can be used and it can be used effectively Um, I think that that then goes to where are you within your season where are you as an athlete and how do you apply it without being a detriment to um, well your life and then also like your um, pursuit of becoming a better athlete. So achieving different adaptations on the strength front or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so as far as a coach goes, um, if I tell an athlete or if I agree, um, for an athlete to do a fasted ride, it's going to be before some sort of, um, like it's going to be a recovery spin. I am not the type of person that, asks an athlete to do a three to four hour to five hour endurance ride fasted. Um, I think that in my opinion, um, the mental side of that piece is difficult to ask for a athlete to do basically. um, Yes, there are adaptations that can take place by doing a fasted ride of that nature, physical adaptations, but the mental cost of doing that it's rare athlete to be able to do that without having it take some sort of a toll um so it's no i don't say i regularly agree to fasted rides um i think if i do it is before any sort of recovery ride or if it's um it is something that they have built up to over time within you know either intermittent fasting or um, some other protocol to get them into a comfortable place. Um, and then I also need to know that if that is taking place, that it doesn't affect future workouts so that I can, you know, be at 100% that the next day they are ready to go. Um, and that's a difficult thing to do if you are pushing into, you know, the three, four hour range um, fasted. So, sorry, that was a, a vague ish answer. Um Yeah. <laughs>
1: No, that's, that's really good. Cause that, I mean that, that, that touches on, you know, basically all the, all the same points that I, what I've recommended those and, and used those with athletes, some successfully, some it's it seems to be no change. Um, the, the things that, again, like you said that I, if, if I ever have, if I ever have an athlete, um, get into facet riding, it always starts with recovery spins. Yeah. It doesn't start with recovery spins that are after a super hard weekend of training either. It starts with recovery spins maybe in the middle of the week where they had like a sort of hard workout the day before and they have a sort of hard workout the next day. It's never like that. Oh, it's your recovery week. So let's start your recovery spin with a fasted ride. Um, I think one thing that a lot of people miss and or like a piece that people m- misunderstand about the recovery ride itself is there's a lot of people when I've talked to them or seen them do that is they do the fasted ride and then they continue to not eat afterwards. Cause they think, Oh, well I've, I've done all this fasted riding. The only way it will work is if I continue to not have food and that is just completely not how that works. Right. When we're talking about, and I'll come, I always come back to this when you're talking about training, adaptation, stress, Right, you need to put your body under stress for it to adapt. Riding for an hour at endurance pace without adequate carbohydrates is the stress you've just put it under. At that point, you're very depleted in carbohydrates. You're gonna feeling be feeling not super great, especially when you're starting into this. And so, anytime I have someone do that, it's it's you know have breakfast as soon as you're done riding. I'll sometimes. As I initially initially I start with twenty minute recovery spins, that'll grow out to up to one hour endurance rides. During some of those, it'll be okay. You're doing this endurance ride. At forty minutes in, have something to eat, have some sports drink, have something because we just we wanted that forty minutes of fasted riding to get those adaptations. But we know that you know if you do these next twenty minutes, you're going to be worthless at work for the next <laughs> six hours. Yep. And so there's that component of, of slowly building into it. There's the component of refueling afterwards is more vital than any other training session you do, I would argue. And then whenever I do that, I also make it explicitly clear that I need feedback from you in your notes for the day and in the next day about how you're feeling, how are you feeling right after the ride? How are you feeling in the afternoon? How are you feeling in the evening? How are you feeling the next morning? And then ideally we, we start to progress that. So that becomes maybe, depending on the block, that's a session that's done once a week that can potentially expand up to two sessions. Again, all endurance. And for the people who it's been successful with, that I've worked with, it comes to a point where those endurance sessions, like two one-hour endurance sessions in the morning, from their own feedback and their workouts, it's become a non-issue for them. They've handled it completely fine. And so now we're at the point where, again, training, adaptation, stress. <laughs> this is now indication that, that one hour, those two one-hour endurance sessions aren't necessarily stressing. their. They're not stressing their body to the same extent. They're getting some stress from it, but at that point, once they – can be like, oh, I'm fine doing an hour in the morning. I can even do an afternoon session if you want me to. Once they get to that point, then you have to reevaluate that, okay, these these one-hour fasted sessions are no longer making the forward progress that we want. And so that time either needs to be allocated to other types of training to make you faster or you need to step up what you're doing in those fasted sessions. The most I've worked someone up to is... um, basically three by 12 minute low tempo efforts fasted. Every time no one's gotten past that. (laughs) No one, and that's over
0: the course of like an hour or, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, that's
1: a one hour. That's a one hour ride. Like, you know, sometimes stretching up to an hour 30. Sometimes with those riders who have adapted more, I'll say, go do your four hour weekend ride. Don't eat anything for the first hour and a half. Yeah. And then start eating. Um, But that's really the max intensity you want to get to. And it's important to note that what you're trying to get out of fasted riding is more mitochondria, mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) They are what takes your oxygen and the carbs or fat that you have put it in an energy. The issue when you talk about intensity is as intensity goes up, more carbohydrates are used compared to fat. That's because there's essentially a throughput issue with fat. Like you can basically view it simplified terms that only so much fat can go into a single mitochondria to be used. So if you have more mitochondria, they can still only take so much fat in, but now you've got a whole extra mitochondria to take it in and use as energy. So that's what you're trying to do with fasted riding: is get more mitochondria. So that at slightly higher intensities, you can use more fat simply because you have, you know, more mitochondria accepting fat as fuel. The reason you really can't do high intensity fasted work or you shouldn't is because as intensity goes up naturally, you're going to switch to carbohydrates because you actually get more energy per liter of oxygen from carbohydrates than fat. You're less efficient burning fat, but lactate the presence of lactate in your blood actually down regulates the presence of free fatty acids. So if you do hard intervals, if you do one sprint during a fasted ride and flood out a bunch of lactate for the next 5 minutes, you've completely shifted what your yeah, body wants system, to do with yeah. it. Yeah. And so like fasted rides I think they can be very beneficial. I only really ever recommend them on a trainer. So you can have absolute, complete control. And again, the feedback, how are you feeling? What's going on becomes absolutely critical. critical. I think that that's always the interesting side of
0: facet riding um, is it's almost like allocation of energy and allocation of time. So if you only have so many hours a week to train for something, um, you know, unless you're a professional athlete and you have the time to devote to that it might not be the best use of your time. And, um, you know, of course there is a time and place for maybe it is, but, um, it's, yeah, that's one of those things where that's usually the first question I ask is like, well, if we do this, does it take away from this? Um, and sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I have seen it work well with, um, actually quite a few athletes, uh, that I've uh, either been, you know, raced against or had as an athlete. Um, I will say like the the other interesting side of uh like fasting in general is um the opposite, where I've actually been training more athletes to fuel and to vitalize that consciousness more than to really focus on the fasting side of things, um, which I've seen more direct benefit from because it's amazing how many athletes just don't fuel very well um. And like the, the benefit of being able to maximize um, mitochondria is, is great. But then there's also the concept of like, well, is that um, pushing you to not fuel correctly or are you training your gut to take on when as much as you will need on a particular date moving forward? Um, So yeah, it's like, that's been an interesting side that I've been focusing more and more on. Um, And then it's also the, you mentioned feedback, like it's, you do really need to, I think, like, in that scenario, especially within fasting, you need to know that the athlete knows what sensations are occurring because of the fasting or because of lack of nutrients compared to um, other sensations, which is, uh, it takes a while to figure that out and learn that and be an athlete that knows that. Um, so, it, yeah, it definitely takes finding. So that's why I tend to tread a little more lightly mm. on which athlete I'm okay doing that. I do have a lot, uh, not a lot, but some of my elite guys doing it. Um, and I do trust them throughout that process. Um, but it definitely takes, yeah, it's a building.
1: Yeah, for sure. You, you, you kind of referenced my third question there. Okay. But there's one more thing I wanted to, to say. It's like, you're right, like th- there is, you know, the proliferate like mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, okay. getting more mitochondria is great, but there's a, a, caveat to that in that doing excessive fasted training, right? There's, there's the enzymes in your mitochondria that are responsible for, you know, turning fat into fuel. They're kind of rate limited. They're kind of what they are, which is why you have the throughput issue of to burn more fat. You just need more mitochondria. Um, the enzymes within mitochondria and that are outside of mitochondria that turn carbohydrates into fuel, those can proliferate as well. And so if you're doing exclusively fasted riding, you'll actually downregulate those carbohydrate using enzymes. So you'll actually decrease your body's ability to use carbohydrates for fuel, hmm. which if you're doing any sort of intensity, as we've already said, as intensity goes up, you need to use more carbohydrates. Yeah. If all of a sudden you can't burn as many carbohydrates, and the last hour of your race requires you to burn nothing but carbohydrates, and a then, bunch of fast riding has not, yeah, has not helped anything. you. So yeah. it's definitely one of those pieces that's like it can be a very good component to training, but really under no circumstances should it be the only component of training. Yeah. And you can get into the whole ketogenic diet side of things. I've had many talks with people on the various internet places about that. Um, but essentially we can just break it down to like chemistry dictates and this is just a fact if you're using fat aerobically to produce energy you will get less energy than if you're using that same oxygen with carbohydrates to produce energy you can still do your high intensity your quote unquote, your high intensity stuff in a ketogenic state i guarantee you if you had carbohydrates you'd be able to go harder
0: <laughs> yeah you could still possibly get like to the um, system that you're wanting to engage but it just might not be as like well you won't be able to do it for responses. very yeah yeah so
1: oh man
0: yeah we won't talk about diets <laughs> <laughs> not today no I hope that's not one of your questions
1: oh no no okay i, need, I know i need a whole <laughs> other set of years of school to legally yeah
0: talk about that talk about- all oh, right man. dang this has been a session um yeah i'm definitely going to break this up we are at two hours and 10 minutes of recording time. Um, so thank you, Mac, for joining me. Um,
1: <laughs> thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, please like, let us know um, if you like this style of format, if you were interested in this conversation, um, because we um, can do more. So yeah, let it let me know. Um but there yeah, this will be a two part series that I'll kind of break up. Um and hopefully you guys will get some good little nuggets out of this. Um just hearing two coaches rant and ramble on. Um but yeah, thanks again for tuning in. Um and if you did enjoy our conversation, um, send find us on Instagram. It's at training edge pod and send me a message. Let me know that you did enjoy it or if you would like to hear more or if you would like to hear certain conversations covered. Um, But have an awesome week, everyone. Um, Until next week's episode, keep finding your edge.